Hi, welcome back to Hoop. Today, I am back with Katya. This is her second episode with us and what we're discussing today is something I've always found to be very interesting. Our episode today is titled Hope for Wars and Workspaces. Catchy name, I know, and an even catchier topic. We're going to familiarize you with conflict resolution and justice terminology and plenty of real-world examples to get you thinking about how complex the seemingly simple ideas of justice and retribution are. But before we do, hi Katya, how are you? Hi, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm really excited to talk to you. Same here. So, um, okay. So let's start by maybe talking a little bit about the kind of fields you work in so that we could sort of give like a brief as to how you know a little bit about conflict resolution, if that suits you. Yeah, definitely. Um, I generally work in the field of democratic innovation, more specifically in the area of public participation and citizen engagement. So my main focus is non-war zones. However, a big part of my work is consensus building. And whenever you work with a community, there is always conflict and it's a natural progression. Of course, there are different scales. So this is the angle from which I operate within the field or intersect with the field of conflict resolution and mitigation of conflict. And also as the area of my work, I work quite a lot with the inclusion whatever that means, whatever minority group we're talking about, whether racial, ethnical, religious, if it's a gender minority group, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so that's my daily work. But beyond that, my background is in human rights and humanitarian action. So that was a part of my academic path to learn about conflict resolution, peace building, traditional justice. And beyond that, I do some activist work related to women's rights and LGBTQ plus rights. And again, this is where the topics of conflict resolution and just justice, especially traditional justice are popping up from. So it's a little bit of my professional work and a little bit of my academic background, but me, basically the lenses, perspective of consensus building and inclusion. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Like there's like a lot of different elements of your journey over the last few years coming into that. So uh, you mentioned um, two terms, restorative justice and transitional justice. I think since those are key terms to like the entire conflict resolution process, we could start a little bit, we could start by talking a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. So when it comes to restorative justice, it, that's different between what is a normative system that we have at the moment, which is retributive justice, and what is a restorative justice. Uh, so in a nutshell, retributive justice focus, the justice that we have at the moment focuses on the punishment of the offense that happened and on basically putting people accountable for the actions they did. Um, that does not necessarily have a strong look into the cause of the actions and into the reintegration of the people or the group that made the offense in, back into society. And it definitely doesn't put uh, a focus on building the bridge between the offended party and 
the abuser or the, the criminal, whatever the crime is. And that's the model in which we operate at the moment. Uh, our justice system focuses on quote unquote catching the bad guys, uh, not necessarily looking into socioeconomic structures or hierarchies that led them to a specific situation in which they committed crime. Then we punish them either by uh, putting them in jail or fining them or in certain cases even capital punishment. And then they release them back to society without necessarily helping them to rebuild the connection with the community or helping them to close the gap uh, in understanding of why and what happened and getting a better citizens and integrate back. And restorative justice tries to basically flip it on its head and it focuses on the understanding of what led to the offense or to the crime and then making sure that this root cause is resolved so it doesn't happen in the future and into reintegrating people in the society also through reconciling them with the victim whenever it's possible and of course it doesn't exclude taking people accountable for the actions that they did uh, because those are still we're, we're still talking about the criminal system we're still talking about justice but the focus is really not the punishment, the focus is ensuring it doesn't happen in the future. And that's the key difference between those two terms. Right. Okay. So one is based on a more integrated framework, while the other is more like put the punishment and get the job done. Exactly. Okay. So um, another term that I read about when I was uh, reading about conflict resolution is something called a live book. And um, from what I could understand, it was you basically expose a person into an environment and they sort of act like a live book wherein they have questions being asked to them and then they answer those questions. So that's what I could understand in brief, but what is your take on it? Like in your opinion, how does it work? So live book is a fantastic methodology that I've seen applied in very different environments. As you said, it basically, the way it works you, a life book is a person who has a unique experience, usually comes from the group that is for some reason not accepted by a community. And the purpose of this activity is to expose people um, who don't understand, I don't know, let's say it's an immigrant from, I don't know, let's say it's an immigrant from Muslim country, um, for people who are violently anti-immigrant, violently Islamophobic, to get exposed to those people and to see them as uh, actual living, breathing human beings. Um, it is really effective in a way that uh, whenever we talk about discrimination, whenever we talk about some prejudice or about the conflict, there is a tendency to dehumanize the other and to see those people just for the caricature that is associated and connect connected to all the bad things. Uh, when people talk about anti-immigrants, they talk about them being criminals, they're talking about them being abusive, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't see a human person behind that. And there is proof that a simple exposure to other people really helps to fight this type of prejudice and helps to start the process of actually building bridges because at this point you already 
start seeing them at least as people with whom you can have conversation, with whom you share a common ground. So the way live books are organized, they usually are judgment-free spaces. So whoever agrees to be a live book has to be ready for some potentially intrusive, invasive, or uh, questions that are not, I don't want to say politically incorrect because it's a term that's been overused, but really offensive questions um, because people are coming from a place of judgment. So it can be a traumatic, traumatizing experience. So whoever agrees to do that should be aware of this. Of course, there is no, uh, you're not obliged to do it. If you're having discomfort from the question, you can say that a question makes you uncomfortable. I want to talk about this and move on. But generally, you should be ready for this. So it, it's a format that works. Uh, it works in uh, areas that are conflict free. Uh, but it also has been used and is being used in gray areas around the conflict zones or in the conflict zones, especially when we're talking about prolonged or frozen conflicts. And uh, in this case, it really helps to create the connection that is lost between those two communities. So right. as I said, I. I, I've seen that being effective in action. All I'm saying is that it really requires a lot of moderation. You have to have a good moderator who can take care of the crowd and ensure the safety. Uh, but all in all, it's also good for non-conflict environments when you just want to learn about specific experience that you don't necessarily have. Right, okay, that makes sense. So um, have you seen any instances where it's been applied and it's worked? So from what I know, there has been a series of those activities in the gray zone in Ukraine, in east of Ukraine, where there is a war between the Donetsk and Lugansk Russian supported regions and Ukraine. The conflict has been going on for long enough to people to start develop those dehumanizing views of each other. Uh, where the Russian-speaking population would refuse to be in contact with the Ukrainian-speaking populations. And so there are groups working in those zones that make those live libraries uh, happen, where in the Russian-speaking places, they would invite Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainian, -speaking, Ukrainian um, students to talk about their experience and the other way around. I've also seen that being done in Russia, where live books would be LGBTQ plus community members. Um, Russia is becoming more and more hostile towards queer people. And so that was done in order to support queer community, to give visibility, and also to give them voice to actually speak up about their experience and to let people know about what's happening. It, Came with the cost, there were uh, quite some problems. There were violent examples of people who obviously came there not to listen, but to be offensive and threatening and violent. So, and that's why it's always important to keep this aspect in mind and really think about security. Right, so like you said, right? Like there are always going to be people who come and sort of try to disrupt the process. So. Do you think that like in volatile cases like sexual harassment, like this is something that would work or would it be too volatile situation to expose the, um, the survivor to? 
I that is a great question. And first of all, that would be a question to the person who's invited to speak. Um, again, the the beauty of feminism and the, the beauty of our effort to fight sexual harassment is we should empower the victim. And for some people, um, for some survivors, empowerment lies in not talking about this and not in distancing themselves from trauma. And they see talking about it or associating their identity with trauma as something disempowering and reducing. For some people, it's the other way around. So it always should come from a place of, I want to do it because that makes me feel strong and powerful and I believe in this. So nobody shouldn't be forced to do that. And that's one of the key principles. Otherwise, every issue, the less we talk about it, the more volatile it gets. Uh, that's my strong belief um, that silence and lack of discussion is one of the reasons why uh, some issues are seen as more controversial because whenever you try to talk about them, there is always an outrage. It's like, oh, why are you talking about this? This is this is too much. So of course, it's going to generate a lot of um, responses, especially if it's an actual sexual harassment case that is high profile. But those are necessary discussions. So I would really always encourage to have as many of them as possible as long as it's safe. Like there's always safety first and, and you can take it from there. Right, okay, that makes sense. Um, so um, in your opinion, um, what case would restorative justice be better suited to? And in what cases would transitional justice be suited to? I mean, there have to be like a certain, um, there has to be a certain dynamic that exists for either of those to be functional in a way that's safe and um, that gives justice, right? So um, yes. in your opinion, um, in what cases can either of those two forms of justice be applied? I, I believe when it, we come to restorative justice, this we talk about cases that, well, generally it's a concept that is new for most of us. So even for me, when I have to conceptually think about this, I always have those like mental blocks of like, oh, should we, should we allow this to be part of restorative justice? And I think it's, um, it, it's a pitfall and it's the wrong way of thinking about this because it assumes that restorative justice does not quote unquote punish the person. Restorative justice does keep people accountable for their actions. It does not say that uh, the perpetrator will walk free and that's that's great. They'll just sit down with the person they they wronged in whatever way. So let, let's say some extreme case of sexual violence, let's say a rape, um, the restorative justice will not let the rapist go off um, and just leave happily ever after and it will not force the victim to sit down with this person. Again, restorative justice is nuanced enough to account for the opportunity for the possibility of the victim of to be traumatized. It does take an account that person should be held accountable for the actions. It just shifts the focus. So in this case, restorative justice system will look into 
why sexual just sexual violence exists on the first place and what actually made this situation possible. So in essence, it holds accountable not only the person who actually made who actually committed the crime, but also it holds accountable the whole system. And that's the beauty of it. Because uh, retributive justice does not do that. It just punishes the person without necessarily looking into what power dynamics, what hierarchies, what structures exist in society that that enable these crimes. And there are plenty of those. And when yeah, when we talk about transitional justice, that's something different. Um, that just talks about the usually about the more numerous violations that are really you can't really manage within the normal justice system because there is no adequate response. So then you have to create a whole other system that has to manage it. Right, okay, that makes sense. But um, so in this case, we're talking about like more uh, individual cases, right? So we're talking about cases on a more micro level, but in context resolution on a more macro levels, for example, between communities where one has been oppressed and one has been the oppressor. So for example, the black-white dynam dynamic, what would work in that yes. case? So, in, and this was exactly where we set aside restorative justice. Like when we talk about individual cases within our legal system right now, um, we would definitely adopt restorative justice approach because it still looks into structural problems and helps to reintegrate individual, re-educate individual and resolve those issues. But when we talk about cases of mass human rights violations, of massive inequality and violence, then the better suited system for managing it is transitional justice, because it really assumes the goal of this system is not only to, let's say, uh, work on an individual case, it's called transitional justice for a reason. The goal of the system that's set up temporarily in a community or in a society is to help the whole society to move from point A where those violations happen to point B where they don't. And it's a much more complex system that really aims at changing the structure of a society and the components of it are more complex and it starts from acknowledging the truth and understanding what actually happened because a lot of the times especially if we talk about like mass atrocities uh let's say uh, genocide in a lot of cases, the reaction to let's just not talk about it. It happened. We shouldn't really focus on it. Let's just, uh, we're not going to uncover the whole thing. Let's just punish those responsible and pretend that we're good. Uh, restorative justice basically says, no, we're going to go into the darkest corners of our society and we'll see everything that has been done because we, you can't actually progress without understanding and it's a form of justice in itself to speak the truth. Um, during those traditional justice processes, uh, when the victims of the, let's say, the oppressive regime um, were asked what are the components that uh, they thought are important, over 70% would mention that just the truth 
part of it is empowering in itself. Having recognition that their story is real and that it was an actual pain that they lived through is already important. And only then after you uncover all of the truth, you can actually move to the whole justice component of it to hold accountable people um, who are responsible for the system. And then, and this is incredibly important, you have to, the reparation part of it should be not neglected. People should be compensated for what has been done to them on the mass scale. And from this, you build, you reconcile society. Because when something traumatic, massively traumatic happens, there is a natural divide between not only oppressor and oppressed, but also the bystanders, because the traumatic events naturally polarize society. And again, traditional justice system doesn't say, okay, we, we put this, this guy in jail, he was the dictator, we put in jail those 10 people responsible for the army, uh, really good atrocities. So now you guys figure it out, everything is great. No, you actually have to make sure that society heals and bonds and stays together. And it's a very fine balance between finding all four. And that's where traditional justice models vary. They put fo more focus on one or the other. Some of them don't necessarily have one component or the other. Uh, like South Africa, they didn't do preparation side of it that much, um, which as we see now creates, recreated the cycle of inequality because the black population has never been repaid uh, for the losses during apartheid socially and economically, which de facto did not change their social and economical situation and just lifted the loss. So that, that's where all those differences are coming from. And again, as you can see, it's a very complex and very um, specific type of a process that the, the community goes through. Right, yeah, because like, I agree with you, like when you look at South Africa, there's a very, very clear distinction between um, the wealth uh, that white people have and uh, black people have, which is very concerning because the entire point of the process was to sort of integrate them. But even now, there's a very stark divide, you know, like the white South Africans are very wealthy, but the black South Africans are still the ones who are not so wealthy, you know, and they still haven't received the reparation that they should have and exactly. that yeah and like it's really concerning to see that because although they were given justice they weren't ever given justice in the mm -hmm. way they should have been you know it's like they acknowledged the fact that yes um this this uh, this was something that was done like the truth element was there and um to a certain extent the systems were broken down but Mm -hmm. I feel like even after the systems were broken down, because of the economic disparity that existed, the inequalities still continued to exist, right? So systems were never actually fully broken down, which is... Exactly. Yeah. And in looking back now and looking at what's happening in terms of the social frustrations that both population, both black and white population have, it's even harder in a sense to work around it now because you have uh, black South Africans who are frustrated that their social and economic status did not change. They're still trapped in the same position. 
and they don't see the transitional justice process finished or fair, and they want to change the system, while white South Africans are saying, well, we've already done everything, why are you unhappy? Why are you trying to take something extra? Because this process is over, the ship had sailed, we're all, all supposed to be happy. <laughs> so because they didn't, and as you can see, like they of those four components of truth, justice, reconciliation, and reparation, because the reparation part was not done and neglected, reconciliation never really happened because right. there wasn't really this integration and this healing that that uh, was supposed to happen. And right now it's going to be so much harder to change because again, a huge portion of population is super happy where they are. They think right. they've done everything really well and, and right. And the other part is extremely unhappy and looks back at the past and says, well, that was that was a bad deal. Can we try to, you know, redo that? Yeah. And the the momentum is lost and this is where people start to say to the black Africans like why is so ready like just you know deal with it yeah. and, and and that's something that is infuriating because i i know a lot of people who are who are having this like maybe not that extreme but who have this sort of opinion of like well that should have happened earlier and now it's kind of a little bit too late it's like, well nah, not really too late we just should do something about it <laughs> Uh, like and again you should just really plan it plan it well again because transitional justice is supposed to change the system including uh, social yeah. including economic it should really tackle the inequality without just superficially saying that we're good now like yeah we've done bad very very sorry not gonna do it again <laughs> well you've already done it you already built the whole system that continues to oppress people so it's yeah. it's very frustrating. <laughs> it, it it is really frustrating, and and that's why the transition like uh, whenever people talk about transitional justice, it boils down to the question of how far society is willing to go, yeah, and what kind of kind of points people are willing to sacrifice and what kind of values we see it as inalienable and which values we see as something that is possible to change. Right. Again, it, it all comes back to the values embedded in the colonialism, like the land was acquired and that's something we should never, never really do because for some reason, private property is more valuable than the well-being of fellow, or fellow people. And right. again, in transitional justice discussions, the questions of power and private property and the colonial past are often neglected. Yeah. Again, um, that's an even more complicated question to have because at some point in the transitional justice path, people really want to stop uh, because right. most, most often than not, you run into the topics of colonialism and imperialism and capitalism and how it reinforces the problem of not creating it. Yeah. And this is a conversation nobody wants to have. So <laughs> people people usually stop there and like, okay, white people did bad. Uh, we're not gonna talk about why they did bad. We'll just try to fix it in, in, in the way that doesn't really threaten the core beliefs that led to it. Right. So basically what I'm saying, if you look close enough to any transitional justice process, you'll see that the truth is not 
will be there either. <laughs> and, okay, uh, I think it's very clear which form of justice you prefer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 again, I'm, I'm all, I, I guess, um, I don't want to sound as a pessimist, like, I, I really believe in this justice model, and I don't, I do want to see it happening, uh, and what I think, like, my, my opinion is, it's relevant not only for conflict-ridden countries, we have a lot of countries that struggle with poverty, that struggle yeah. with a lot of racism, that struggle from the colonial past. So this transitional justice is needed um, in the sense of we need to look back into our past to understand from where those hierarchies came from and right. try to rebalance the scales. I'm just pessimistic about how far people are willing to go when actually embarking on the transitional justice uh, path yeah and yeah. again at, at the moment at the moment it's used exclusively and it is a term used exclusively in the area of international humanitarian law and human rights violations but i'm generally talking that conceptually this model should be applied to society at large uh, because we have a lot of uh, issues related to systematic structural problems and this whole right. uncovering of the truth, the reconciliation, retributions should be something that we we should be doing. Uh, especially during during COVID, uh, with this like growing um, gap in wealth and inequality. Yeah, because whenever you think about justice right now, in society that term is restricted to just acknowledging that yes we did something and we're sorry for it we won't do it again like that's where it ends there is nothing beyond that that the word justice is associated with today you know and it's like a punishment will be given to the person who somehow perpetrated the crime but um to what extent does that help the people who were affected by it you know like there is there is no clear um retribution given to the people who were affected by the crime that was committed it's usually just saying yeah um, we're sorry, um, we'll accept our punishment, but uh, we, we hope you're good with that. Like, I think, I think that's good enough for you, you know, <laughs> which is very, yeah. very, very frustrating because at the end of the day, that doesn't solve the problem that was created. You know, it just sort of mitigates it to a certain extent, but the existing problem continues to exist. So it's just fake mitigation. <laughs> Exactly. And it, it's a great also question of what, as you said, justice is. We think about it only in terms of crime and also even crime is defined in a very specific form and only very specific acts are considered as crime. Crime, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about US because it's quite an extreme case. Uh, the laws regarding, for example, housing are very loose there, so it's quite easy to evict people. And that has been, it become a very apparent problem during COVID when a lot of people lost their jobs or started losing their jobs or went into bankruptcy. And I'm like, how, how is that a crime to steal food that you need to eat, uh, to literally survive? But it's not a crime to evict five families that gonna have to spend winter on the streets because it's so cold. Right. So yeah, the definition. Even the way we define crime and the way we define justice is very much uh, dominated by the current values and those who had enough power to write the laws throughout our history. That's very true, yeah. 
And again, I'm, we'll look at the examples of people who are clearly guilty, who admit guilt, or who is very apparent are guilty, um, but they have enough money and the justice system allows them to get away because of the wealth that they have. Or um, if not to get away, but to have a morally in terms of how long they stay in prison and how good or bad the conditions are. So again, in, in this case, the problem with justice system as of now is that it doesn't solve issues of this event. That's very true. It yeah, doesn't try, it, it doesn't, it doesn't try to prevent the crimes. And again, a lot of the times, if you look back, I'm not trying, like, again, even the very extreme cases where I would be livid for this crime to happen to anyone as in examples of sexual harassment or sexual violence, as much as I would be furious towards the person who did it, I also understand that there is a bigger problem behind this, let's say, one man assaulting a woman. There is a whole society that is built in a way that made him think that that's a thing that he can do. Right. And the issue with current justice system, it doesn't prevent those crimes from happening and it doesn't really aspire to change the current culture. Right, that's true. It's just... As I said, an acknowledgement of a truth, which isn't even the full truth ever, you know. Exactly. And with justice, to be honest, it's, it's a lot of the times it's uh, the game of words, especially if you think about um, specific, like I'm just very familiar with those cases and examples, specifically with rape. Um, the way the crime is defined is so word specific that um, I think in California a few years ago, it was rape was defined through active negation of consent. And there was a case when the woman was unconscious, so it wasn't uh, technically a rape because she did not negate the consent. And after that case created a lot of buzz and for obvious reasons, the woman was unconscious, she couldn't consent, but because of the way it was phrased, that was a different type of crime. So the definition was changed, which has a massive impact on how the justice system then works. And then again, you're like, okay, well, great. Thank you for changing the definition, but the problem <laughs> is not only the definition, but that you enable young men or men to be committing this crime through sexism and misogyny in society. Yeah, and like having like such loose definitions is the entire reason why the justice system is so easily misused, you know, because like when you have like such a loosely defined definition, which somehow is loosely defined, but at the same time is so specific, it sort of restricts the scope of the crime to such a small extent the perpetrator to just like they just somehow find a way to like go around it in court you know it's like the definition doesn't even encompass everything that it should but still at the same time it's so specific you know it's it's really funny to like think about it that way that it's so loosely defined but yeah. it's specific at the same time and i feel like that's the entire reason that you know that like there are so many loopholes in like most criminal justice systems today because like i understand why mm -hmm. they feel that they can't zero down on each and every case 
but i mean you can try like you don't need to just like give like this broad definition that somehow very specific in words and that be like yeah this is the only definition we accept i mean anything besides from this is just like no like deal with it you know like it makes no sense whatsoever it's it's very infuriating when you think of it that way mm-hmm. yeah yeah and you know like i think this brings us to like a very important so like right now we were talking about loose terms and like very specific definitions so i think that brings us to like just talking about who writes these laws you know it brings us to talk about inclusion you know because mm-hmm. the laws as we said not very inclusive at all very 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 specific in the way that they don't encompass anything of value and obviously it's done by those who feel that okay you know to a certain extent maybe we can misuse these laws too so i think inclusion is a very important discussion to have when we talk about conflict resolution definitely when it comes to justice system in whatever form we're talking about this whether it's restorative and recreative justice nowadays or transitional justice it's essential to have diversity and inclusion as a key component from it because otherwise even if people have the best intentions in mind they just aren't able to understand the needs and experiences of everyone and so what ends up happening is exactly those cases as we talked about for example when it comes to rape when people who are not as affected by it and who had certain relationship to women and who saw women in a certain way right the definitions it means that the hit is taken by women and if you actually have a woman sitting on a committee working on reshaping the law or reshaping the legal system the process will actually include the experiences of those who should be helped and same comes to transitional justice conflict resolution and peace building again a massive body of research shows that inclusion of women and inclusion of young people dramatically increases sustainability of a peace building process and the conflict resolution process again because you better understand the needs because and then because you have two populations uh one is women that are often especially in conflict zones are very um uh, tied to home they're usually the caregivers and care providers in conflict zones and conflict areas so their primary understanding of the conflict zone is through the lens of sustaining the houses and sustaining peace uh, because they are the main providers in these conditions normally and same for young people those are the people who have a much higher uh further let's say outlook on life and they are the most motivated and they are very innovative so having those two parties just including those two populations to groups is incredibly important in those transitional justice and peace building processes yeah and i think that's uh, the, the the fact that they're not really included right now is the reason why we have um not extremely effective justice systems because of the fact that people who should be included aren't necessarily included because of the systemic systems that exist and all the stereotypes that exist in society it's exactly because of that that our justice systems today aren't as effective as they should be you know because although we have people who want to be included like rallying on the streets and talking to policy makers at the end of the day 
not like even right now their opinion isn't taken into account by writing the actual laws that determine how justice will be given in a particular country you know so yeah. although everyone's like yeah you know we're coming really far in terms of um how uh system systematically discriminated groups are being looked at and how well their opinion is being respected that sort of um true in a certain way that yes they're more visible now but also in the place where their opinion will actually have a very 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 visible difference for a long time that where their opinion lasts you know so it's like temporarily yes but not permanently you know like you can't permanently guarantee that they will be given the same amount of voice that they given right now you know but because they're not allowed to help out with the laws that would ensure that so that that automatically shows us how important it is to like have a sense of inclusion while you are working on justice systems because otherwise you're not really giving justice to the people who need it you know exactly it, it it's a question of exactly who what position are those people where where the inclusion comes in um the if that's just a token inclusion where a woman stands there at the photo because she's invited um again great at least there was a woman in the room uh but unless that woman has a decision making power that's not really inclusion unless young people who are invited are actually listened to and are given decision making power the quality of this inclusion is very low and again it it comes for law making law legal system changes and reforms transitional justice building visibility processes it's not enough to just have those people in the room it's really important to give them a voice and also to give them a decision making power and that but that transcends this field again even at a workforce when people say we have 30% like 40% women in our company my first question is what positions because if their positions are office managers assistants and um junior project managers that's not true inclusion we're talking about and that applies in the justice system context as much exactly and i think that brings us to our next segment which is um conflict resolution in workspaces so i think since we've talked Yay. about conflict resolution on a really large scale and even on a slightly smaller scale in individual cases in the justice system we can now talk about conflict resolution within teams and maybe between teams you know so that people can sort of understand how they can apply the concepts we're talking about today into their own workspaces you know and you mentioned how your experience has to a certain extent been in um uh consensus consensus building in workspaces right so i think we can talk a little bit about that now definitely uh again same principle would apply I, i'm i'm all in for structural a very close approach and understanding where the conflicts come from uh but generally it's again the the international uh like the international context has more power dynamics in it so that tends it's more complicated but in essence it's the same issues at hand and the same principles should apply um from from my experience uh having the full transparency on what's going on and why it's happening coming to it from a perspective of we want to change so that 
both people benefit rather than somebody wins and just providing space for, for healing. It's um, easier to do so when we're talking about one team, because again, by usually by, uh, at least in my, uh, my field and in my sphere, it's, uh, I'm talking about social impact driven enterprises. We are very mission driven and mission oriented. So we do share a lot of common values and common goals. So it's very much um, easy for us to come back to the shared grounds and build from there. And that's my first advice. Whenever you get in a room with people who are in some sort of conflict or in some sort of a disagreement, that's a really good place to start is to find something they actually share so that they can, you know, is into the conversation a little bit uh, because usually they are very railed up and they are prepared to disagreeing. They are prepared for fighting. They're not really prepared for listening and agreeing with each other. So it's always good to encourage this um, constructive conversation at the beginning uh, and to encourage active listening. So whenever I'm in this environment, I usually ask people to mix in groups and work on a topic that is both relevant to them. So they, I don't know, let's say we're working with a city community that lives around the public square and they are disagreeing what to, how to renovate the public square. What I would do as a first exercise, I would split them in groups of those who are pro one project and those who are pro the, pro the other, I'll just mix them. And I'll ask them to list things they like and dislike about the square or how the, for example, things they do at the square. Most of the time, they're gonna find things that they all like and dislike, kind of the same, or at least some of overlap is gonna be there. Right. And again, that helps them to see of like, oh, we actually think the same. So let me try to understand why we're disagreeing. And from here, you, you should actively encourage people to actively listen to each other. And whenever possible, also encourage people to literally use this very cheesy, very cliche phrase, yes, and. So whenever you agree with something to say, I agree, but, and also, and add something. Again, yeah. it, it, it's a very, it's a very, tacky thing but it actually works um it and i've i've done that and even my professional life with people i when i knew that people are in disagreement with me and i need to build um some sort of rapport so that we can cooperate i would try to find the teeniest tiniest little detail whatever that is i don't know the font that they chose for this presentation and be like yeah that's great but also we could really improve this, this, and this. And again, because it started with something that is in, agree, in agreement with them, they're more likely to listen. Uh, so getting people to say yes, basically getting people, yeah. I mean, uh, you gotta do what you gotta do. Um, but no, with, with all seriousness, I'm for, uh, in no way saying that you should fake it. It should be really genuine. So finding this point of intersection is, is really, really important. Um, and that's a key. And of course, whenever it's getting really personal, even at workspace, you should have a moderator. You should really have somebody who is in the room um, if, if that 
really is a situation that is kind of like spiraling out of control. Um, again, not to say you're right, you're wrong, but to be an impartial person to really help manage the discussion and keep it moving in a constructive way. Yeah, because like um, in in uh, within teams, it's like a power dynamic that exists as well, you know. So like, it's very important to like have a moderator there who's like sort of moderating that dynamic as well as the situation. And like, I feel like professional problems always like are a lot easier to solve in the workspace than personal problems are. Because like, I I feel like personal problems would just turn into like a therapy session rather than like a you know like a um conflict. Oh. <laughs> session for, for, for sure and and my my colleague is a, is a bit more experienced with that he sometimes does more therapies than consulting consulting sessions um but it, it's it's also very very important and one thing to really always acknowledge is the dynamic in the room not necessarily in a way it's depending again on the person it's sometimes good to say it out loud uh or in advance that we should be mindful of this in this uh, or sometimes it's enough and that's the technique that I used in the previous workspace uh, when we had a few people who could have said something problematic I would never go into like full-headed conflict when they say something I just really mark it as something inappropriate and move past it so whenever they say something that's I don't know let's say racist I would be like I'm don't think this is relevant or valid or should be brought into a workspace that's racist but let's not discuss it if you want to talk about this let's grab a coffee after work and like we discuss or not even the last part again uh if people really want to talk uh, or learn they'll read up or ask me but again those kind of dynamics um are very important yeah i can imagine because like i feel like sometimes because you know the person that you're talking to within teams it's a very very volatile situation you know it's like instead of like a moderator being there to moderate two sides who are trying to negotiate a war it's like two sides that are actively at war with each other while the moderator is there you know so yeah volatile no in again same same in personal and professional always always it like literally step zero not even one bring them back that you are not enemies you're here with the same mission, with the same mind. It's the same in personal relationship. Uh, when you're fighting, I don't know, with your partner, that's a good place to start to say, we're not enemies, we're the same team. Let's just figure out how the team should move on. And at work, big, small, um, that's the first thing. Like, if, you, if you can't get there, then it's gonna be hard. But if you achieve this first step, then I assure you the rest of the conversation is gonna be quite easy because then, Finding consensus will not feel like the end of the world. Yeah, I think it all just comes down to consensus building, no matter what situation you're in, whether you're in a war, whether you're in a workplace, whether you're within your team, all that matters is that you build consensus and sort of work based off of there to make sure everyone's happy, you know, because like, if it's like one person's happy and the other person's not, then again, you're not giving justice and you're not really solving the problem at hand. So I think, yeah, consensus building is mm -hmm. a very important um, aspect of this. Yeah. Yeah, and I think for specifically for workspace, there are generally like four key strategies. So whoever wants to read up on them, but basically you either 
accommodate someone or you compete with them or you collaborate or you just avoid conflict. Those are like really based on how assertive or how cooperative the other side is and how important the issue is to you. That's basically four different issues. It's, it's a nice place to be at when you can just avoid conflict and because you don't care and it's like, it doesn't really affect you. Yeah, I feel like um, I'm the person who avoids conflict because that's just the kind of person I am. I hate conflict. <laughs> like, here we are talking about conflict resolution, but what I actually need to work on is confrontation. <laughs> I can't make, I've, you know, I would prefer if we focused a lot on conflict avoidance and conflict prevention uh, so that we don't actually have to like uh, resolve conflicts. Uh, but again the, this is a whole different scale with like very different power dynamics and like very messy situations like when it comes to like specific groups but at the workplace definitely I avoiding conflict is is a very viable strategy yeah it's a lot easier to do than actually like go ahead or into conflict <laughs> just streamlines the work a lot yeah So I think regardless of what level of conflict and restoration of justice we talk about, whether it's international or whether it's hyper-local at your living room at the, during the dinner with your family or at work, it all boils down to having the shared values and principles. And again, intrinsically, just by, by the setup, you have more shared ground and you have more shared vision within the family and the small team at work. And the conflict, when we, we talk about the war zones, is this exactly because you are not sharing, you don't have anything shared as a vision, as a society. But it also is about very strong power dynamics that created this conflict. So those are in, in this way, those are different. But again, in essence, they're the same. They are about who makes the rules and who gets to decide what the rules of engagement are, what the rules of the game are. And therefore, whenever we talk about conflict resolution in whatever setting, it's important to acknowledge them and to actually invite everybody to rebuild, heal, find consensus, and make a long-lasting, sustaining, and peaceful community of whatever level that is. That's very true. And I think that pretty much gives like a very good um, overview of how conflict resolution works because we discussed um, uh, we discussed strategies to build consensus. We discussed the different ways that justice is given on a macro level on slightly more individual cases. And we talked about different instances where either of those methods would apply, you know? So I feel like that gives a very, very well-rounded introduction to Conflict resolution as a subject, which is very interesting, by the way. And um, I hope everyone learned something and like found something interesting here because Katya is like very smart and she has like a lot of knowledge that she has to give thank to the you, world. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, with that, I think uh, we come to the end of today's episode, um, which is hope for. Build, uh, conflict resolution in wars and workspaces, which is a very cool name, by the way. <laughs> it's an amazing name. Yeah. And honestly, that's that, that, that's really what I wanted to say. That I, I really hope uh, that everyone learned something because maybe for someone that's going to be a career path or academic path, that 
totally can be. But otherwise, it's something worth looking into for anyone because it can save you a lot of time, energy yeah. on on all levels of your life, whether work or home. That's so true. <laughs> so, um, thank you for um, taking out the time to be with us today, Katya. It was very, very fun and very, very, a very interesting experience to like learn about all this and to share it with the people who listen to our podcast. So, um, thank you so much. Thank you.